You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We talked last week, verses 1 through 6. We're going to pick up verses 7 through 13 today. Um, Last week we were continuing to talk about uh, just this mystery of Jew and Gentile being united as one people. And uh, we said last week that God used Paul intentionally to further reveal his plan that was made long ago, a plan to unite Jew and Gentiles as the church, a plan we're able to deepen our understanding about simply by reading and studying his word. And so the key points from last week were that Paul was the instrument, the tool that God used to really bring light to this plan that had been in place all the way back in the Old Testament. Wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. There were hints and signs. Um, There was an awareness of it, but full revelation really comes on more in the New Testament. And Paul was bringing light to the fact that Jew and Gentile were to be united. And he drew attention to the fact that we can read about this plan and we can perceive insight into this plan because God had given him direct revelation and he had written it down for us. And so we talked about uh, being captured by the plans of God. Paul sees himself as a prisoner of Christ, not a prisoner of Rome. And so he's submitting his circumstances to God's control. We talked about being comforted by a God who plans, not a God who reacts. And so while The Jew-Gentile relationship seems new and seems fresh in the New Testament. What we saw last week is that it was always there, always present, always part of God's plan. So we can take comfort in a God who plans, and we can be committed to reading about God's plans. Part of my challenge to you last week was to make plans to read the Bible, uh, both last week, this week, over the summer, with a specific desire to deepen your understanding of God's plan, and then look for ways to, um, to tell others about the truths that you're reading about and learning about right? That's what Paul's doing. Paul is gleaning truth from God, and then he's conveying it to other people, and we have that role too. Um, I had forgotten this week that I was supposed to do our um, devotion at our administrative meeting, and so I was running around before the meeting. I had something that I had to get done, went up to my headmaster and said, hey, can you, can you complete this thing that I'm trying to get done before the meeting? And he was like, yeah. He's like, are you ready to do the devotion today? And I was like, oh, I'm thinking like, no, I am not ready. I have forgotten that you asked me to do this last week. And I said, give me five minutes and I'll be ready. Um, And so I just stepped back, went into a different room, paused for a second, began to pray, just took a deep breath and came back into the room and really just began to share the things that we were learning last week together as a church family and uh, really pressed in on this idea of our responsibility to read God's word to read and understand the truths that God has given to us. And and it really worked out great because the day before that, before that administrative meeting, we had been talking as a Bible department about how we wanted to really be intentional about teaching our middle school kids to study the Bible, to know how to do it, to equip them to do it, to help them see that if we can equip them, they can gain insight into the truths of God. And so we need to be ready to uh, be ready and prepared always to convey the truths that we are seeing in God's word as we're reading it and studying it. That brings us to verse 7 now of chapter 3, and so I want to read that for us. Um, But let me start in verse 1 and just read the whole section here, because it all really fits together as one passage, and most people preach this as one passage. And so we may even be a little shorter on time today, just because a lot of what we're seeing today has already been told to us in the first six verses Um, But I felt like there was too much last week to try to combine all this into one sermon. So it says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Our summary sentence for today. The gospel is God's plan to save sinners of all kinds while uniting them as one people so that ultimately the angelic beings can further know the greatness of God by the ways the diverse church unites together in fellowship and love. The gospel is God's plan to save sinners of all kinds while uniting them as one people so that ultimately the angelic beings can further know the greatness of God by the ways the diverse church unites together in fellowship and love. For our kids, when God saves people who are different from each other and they learn to love each other, angels are amazed and praise God for his power to do this. I always enjoy watching people. I like going to settings where you can just sit back and watch people act and function and talk and interact with others. I catch myself sometimes not being discreet about it, um, and people catching me, watching them. We were at the fireworks last night in Sonoy here, and there were tons of people, and um, just caught myself sitting there just watching people, listening to their conversations, um, just kind of observing who they are and what they do. Um, And then you always kind of see people startled when they realize that you're watching them, right? I love to watch my kids when they're not aware that I'm watching them. Mally particularly, uh, she does some of the cutest things when you're watching her, and she doesn't know that you're watching her, but as soon as she recognizes that you're watching her, like, that stuff's done with, that stuff's over. She's not going to continue to act that way now that she knows that you're uh, watching her. Uh, Sometimes we're oblivious to the fact that we're being watched, right? We did uh, our eighth grade graduation uh, for our kids on Tuesday night, and we were live streaming it for families at home that couldn't be there, and uh, I'm never aware of when they turn that thing on, and so we're up you know, getting ready to start, and some of the teachers were just talking and chatting, and I get a text message from one of my teachers who didn't have to be there who was watching, and he says, hey, I can hear everything that you're saying right now, and my immediate thought was, how many inappropriate things have I said, and then I stopped, and I said, I mean, I don't make a habit of saying inappropriate things, so like, why am I like stressed out right now that I've said anything inappropriate, Um, but there's that initial fear, almost like when you see a police officer, you're like, I must be speeding, and so you slam on the brakes, even though you may not be speeding, there's just kind of this reaction of like, oh my goodness, I'm being watched, and I didn't realize I was being watched. When we read this passage in in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that we're being watched, that we're being watched intentionally by rulers and authorities in heaven. Now, we've talked already in chapter 1 about rulers and authorities representing kind of the angelic beings, both good and bad probably, Um, and they are watching us and they're gaining insight about who God is and his plan 
by watching it play out in our life. I find that fascinating because that's not something that I'm regularly aware of, right? I, I, I've, I've been made aware of that previously in studying Scripture, but I don't typically wake up on a given day and think, all right, I've got things to do today, and there's angels that are watching me. There are angels that are paying attention to the choices and decisions that I'll make today. Like, I don't think typically in those terms, but what you see, the way that Paul talks here is that this gospel that he's been highlighting so much in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is culminating with this idea in verse 10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God's wisdom would be made known to a group of created beings who are lacking in knowledge about the wisdom of God and are further finding themselves uh, understanding it through how we are acting as the church. And so we're going to talk about that today. I find that fascinating that uh, God is moving and working, not just here, but he's doing things here so that even other parts of his creation can come to a deeper knowledge awareness and understanding of who he is. So we're going to walk through this together um, and talk about it a little bit, all right? So number one, in chapter three, verse seven here, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. First point today is to avoid reducing the gospel to an individualized plan only. Avoid reducing the gospel to an individualized plan only. What do I mean by that? A lot of times when we think in terms of the gospel, we think in terms of Jesus dying on the cross for me to save me so that I don't go to hell, right? Like that's, that's how we sometimes package the gospel in our mind. We're very me-focused when we think about what Jesus has done. But you see right off the bat here in verse seven, he says, of this gospel. Well, which gospel is he talking about, right? There's only one gospel. But we look back in context of what we saw last week. Well, there's more to the gospel than just Jesus saving you and dying on the cross for you, right? What we've been seeing is that the gospel saves individuals to make one people out of all those individuals, right? And so we're leaving out a portion of the gospel if we just talk about Jesus saving you, Jesus dying on the cross for you. Did he do that? Absolutely. Did he save you individually? Absolutely. But he saved you for a bigger purpose. He saved you for good works, but not just for you to go individually out there and do a bunch of good works yourself, to do that together as the church. And not to do it just with people who are like you in the church, but to bring Jew and Gentile together for this glorious purpose of showing how God can unite people from all different backgrounds and unite them around one common goal, one common purpose, one common worship of Jesus, right? And so the gospel shouldn't be so individualized that we lose sight of this, right? So the gospel certainly includes the individual application of God's grace to you as an individual, right? We're not saying that that's not true. The gospel certainly includes the individual application of God's grace to you as an individual. Paul would have said that as well. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, right? Paul was made a minister of the gospel through his own personal salvation. He was shown grace personally to him in spite of who he used to be, right? Verse eight, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, right? We know that Paul, and, and we'll see uh, let's go ahead and we'll look there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul was very mindful 
of how unworthy he was of the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so Paul sees himself included in God's plan, sees himself included as a minister of the gospel, but says, I don't have any grounds to be here. In fact, if you looked at my resume, I shouldn't be here, right? I was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. I was anti-Christ, right? He was anti-Christ. He wanted to eradicate Christ from the minds of the people around. He was persecuting Christians, persecuting the church, and yet God miraculously saved him as an individual, gave him grace that he did not deserve, and that's our testimony for all of us today. If you're a believer, you too have the grace of God given to you, and you had no grounds for deserving it. None. None. And yet God chose to save us by his grace. So the gospel certainly includes an individual application of God's grace to you as an individual. But number two, the gospel is God's plan to unite all kinds of people into one united people for his glory. The gospel is, a, is about God utilizing, or sorry, the gospel is uh, God's plan to unite all kinds of people into one united people for his glory. He says of this gospel, it points back to this mystery that we talked about last week. The mystery that's been revealed, Jews and Gentiles, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, not just individuals, but individuals being brought together as one family, one people, fellow partakers of the promises of God. And the gospel is about God bringing people together and then using them. Because he says, I was made a minister of this mystery, right? The mystery was given to him so that he could then become a minister of it. So I say that to you today so that we can see how important it is, once again, for us to be heavily involved in the local church. Man, if God ever moves you away from here, those of you that have been members, staple members of our church from even the very beginning, for those of you that have God have brought to us over the years after we started, if you ever leave here, it is absolutely crucial that you remain a part of the local church. Right? The gospel isn't just about individuals being saved. It's about individuals being saved and made into one people. That's what the gospel's about, uniting all kinds of people for his glory. So we avoid reducing the gospel to an individualized plan only because Paul says of this gospel, this gospel that teaches and preaches that people are to come together as one people, he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. Number two, allow the gospel to humble you, but not cripple you. Allow the gospel to humble you, but not cripple you. This gospel that Paul is a minister of, we've said he recognizes that it's, 
about God giving grace to those who don't deserve it. His sinful past gave him a greater appreciation for the grace that he had received. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Doesn't deserve it, doesn't have a resume for it, but God graciously gave him salvation. And it kept Paul humble. It kept him humble at all times. But it didn't cripple him, right? It didn't cripple him because he recognized that the gospel is also about God utilizing people regardless of their past. Paul recognized that all the good being produced in him and through him was a result of God's grace with God deserving the glory for it, not himself. But some of us, we could, we could potentially fall prey to getting so caught up in our sinful past that we think that we can't be used by God even after salvation, right? Like it has the, the negative impact of, of not just humbling us, but crippling us to think that, man, what I've done prohibits me from being useful to God. By God's grace, he saved me, but he, he can't use me. Paul's a great example of somebody who really we could have chalked up as somebody who was not useful to God because of what all he had been involved in prior to coming to Christ. And yet God changes him and uses him, which really results in God getting so much more glory because he's using somebody who really shouldn't have been useful to to be this, this pillar of how the church really gets started and moved into the Gentile nations, right? We don't allow the gospel to cripple us. We allow it to humble us. The gospel isn't meant to to drive this stake into us that we're so awful and so bad that God can't do anything with us. The gospel humbles us by reminding us that not by any good works could we ever be saved, right? But it also reminds us that by God's grace and his power, we can be saved to good works. That's what he desires for us. That's what he longs for us. Our past doesn't prohibit us from being used by God for his purposes. So we avoid the reducing or we avoid reducing the gospel to this individualized plan to where we lose sight of the fact that we're supposed to be a part of a people group. We also don't allow the gospel to cripple us in such a way that we're a part of this people group but feel like we don't have a role to play, right? You're a you're a stone in the temple that God is building. You're set apart to be holy and sanctified and consecrated, to be used as an individual who exhorts others in the body, who encourages others in the body, who builds the others in the body up. Allow the gospel to humble you because when we're not humbled and we become prideful, then we lose our usefulness. That's when we really lose our usefulness is when we think we're something and when we think we're special and we start to gain glory for ourselves. Paul says, I don't deserve this. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Number three, we apply the gospel truths to make God further known. We don't reduce it to an individualized plan only. We see this bigger group plan that God has. We see ourselves as part of that plan, useful to that plan, while remaining humble, right? And then we take these gospel truths and we make them further known. Now, Paul's given us an idea here of what his mission is, what his ministry is. It's to tell those who are outside the people of God that they're welcome. That's what he says. He says, my job, my, my role of ministry is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches 
of Christ. So Paul's first aspect of ministry here is to go to people outside the people of God and say, hey, you too can be welcomed into our group. You too can come and enjoy these riches that we are inheriting ourselves, right? So he goes to people outside the people of God and says, hey, come join us in here as the people of God. But then it says, verse nine, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So now who's he primarily having to talk to? Well, he's still talking to the Gentiles because he's helping them to know the ways you can be welcomed in here is because this is part of God's plan and it's always been part of God's plan. But he's also now having to preach to the Jews because not only is he going to people outside the people of God and saying, hey, you're welcome in here. He's having to tell the people who are inside the people of God, you got to welcome them here, right? You got to welcome these people because they are welcome here. This is part of God's plan. And this is where the Jews pushed back, right? This is where the Jews pushed back and said, hey, we don't want any more people in here. Um, We're the special people of God, right? They can go find somewhere else to worship God. That's great that he wants to save them, but we don't have to all be together for this, right? And so Paul's saying, look, those people out there, they're welcome in here. He tells the people in here, hey, those people out there, they're welcome in here. And then his third aspect of his ministry is to take the people who were outside, bring them inside, and then tell the people inside, hey, these people are welcome here. And then to tell both groups of people, hey, we are being watched. He wants to help us see that together we tell the rest of creation about God's wisdom through the ways that we welcome each other. So he's making Christ known to people who aren't like us, making Christ known to people who are like us to help them embrace people who aren't like us, and then making Christ known to beings who aren't like us at all. He's teaching the Gentiles to come. He's teaching the Jews to accept them. And then he's teaching Jew and Gentile together by working together and loving each other in unity. We are making the wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. First off, we see the gospel calls us to experience and then tell others about all the resources we gain in Christ to satisfy all of our deepest desires. The gospel calls us to experience and then tell others about all the resources we gain in Christ to satisfy all of our deepest desires. I was listening to um, John Piper and he was talking about this section of scripture, particularly the reason why Paul chose the word riches to describe God's greatness. And he was talking about, he was defining riches as the resources that we need to satisfy our needs. Because he was making the point that depending on which culture you you are in, you would define riches differently because the things that make up your riches are going to change based on your culture and what's important to that culture and how that culture values certain things, right? And so he defined Riches as being the resources that we need to meet our deepest desires. That's what would that would that's what would constitute us saying, I'm rich. I'm rich if I have the resources I need to satisfy the desires that I have. And that's certainly what Christ gives us. Christ gives us the resources we need to satisfy our deepest desires. Now, what Paul's saying here is that. His job is to tell the Gentiles about these unsearchable riches of Christ that he's enjoying and that he's praying for the church to enjoy, right? We saw these spiritual blessings in chapter one that we're supposed to enjoy as believers. These aren't material things. These are deep spiritual things, right? 
promises of God, the inheritance that's to come, the hope that we have, the full access to God that we enjoy, the forgiveness of our sins, the joining together with others as the family of God, these things that we were far away from previously that we've now been brought close to because of the gospel. We experience these things and then we tell others about these things too. We have a role in making these riches known by the ways we experience them and then share that experience with others. We invite others into the enjoyment of these riches. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Right? He's talking about that concept of riches again, but he's further defining it. He's saying the riches that we enjoy as Christians is the full assurance, the understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, the gospel, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Man, he wants us to enjoy these riches in such a way, really, as you continue to work through this passage, that even as we suffer for the gospel, that our joy and our hope isn't tainted by that, right? That we continue to stay firm and persevere and faithful to him. The gospel calls us to experience these riches and then to share them with others. Paul says, my goal is to teach the Gentiles about these unsearchable riches. Number two, the gospel calls us to unite as one people so that the spiritual world can be further amazed at the wisdom of God. The gospel calls us to unite as one people so that the spiritual world can be further amazed at the wisdom of God. He says, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Again, he's evangelizing the Gentiles who are outside the people of God. He's saying, you are welcome to come to the people of God. He's then having to turn around and tell the people of God, here's the plan, here's the mystery. This is why we are gonna open our arms and welcome these new people who come, right? And why are we gonna do this? Why is this so important? Verse 10, so that through the church, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, people who are alike and who aren't alike, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says, I want the angelic, the demonic beings learning about their creator through the implementation of the gospel in our lives as believers. We saw these rulers and authorities in Ephesians 1.20. Remember we said that, um, talking about Christ, it says that, uh, He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. right, so these are beings that are submitted to Jesus. He's over them. But they're also the types of beings that we do battle against. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. This is where we're told to put on the whole armor of God. Why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the group of people we're talking about. They're not people, they're beings, they're spiritual beings, angelic beings, demonic beings. 
These creatures are looking into the church and they are learning about God the creator by how he is uniting the church together. This is fascinating. This concept of manifold wisdom, right? This is what's being revealed. It's interesting the word choice that Paul has here. It's the same word that ends up being used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word used for the colorful coat of Joseph, right? This diverse coat made up of many colors that that he's given by his dad, right? It's the same word choice used for the type of wisdom of God, this diverse, multicolored wisdom of God. And that's certainly what would happen if we think of Jew and Gentile coming together, right? The Gentile world, people from other cultures, other ethnicities, other skin colors being brought together under one people of God, right? And, 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 and Paul's saying, when this is done, this diverse, multicolored wisdom of God is made evident to these spiritual beings, His divine wisdom is working to build a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And this is the purpose of the gospel. This has always been the purpose. This is the eternal purpose. Look what it says in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's purpose to unite people of all backgrounds into one people of God. And it's impressive to the spiritual beings that watch this happen. His eternal purpose is our eternally determined corporate engrafting into the covenant of grace with many others from all nations. We know from other passages that angels look in at the gospel with curiosity, right? We see this in 1 Peter. And again, this is something that we're not typically mindful of on a daily basis. We forget about these verses. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So he's talking about some veiled things in the Old Testament becoming apparent in the New Testament. And then he throws this little comment in there. This comment about the gospel, the good news being preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels looking into this. We know in Luke 15, 10, we're told that angels rejoice when individual Christians are made. When people come to Christ and are saved, angels rejoice over this. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the heavenly hosts are supposed to look at us in all of our diversity, with all of our sin, with all of our differing personalities and preferences and say, how did God do that? (laughs) How did God take people who are so different, potentially with nothing in common, and unite them around one purpose? How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures to come together in one body to praise him? Our display of unity in Christ's body, the church, is our display to the angels about the power, wisdom, and glory of God. Now, here's what's really cool to think about. As we do this, as we model this, as we come together, as we submit our preferences and ourselves to each other, as we put the needs of others above our own needs, which is what we're called to do in Philippians, right? As we do this, 
despite the fact that we are so different and we come from different backgrounds and different areas, as we do this, we increase the cause for worship in heaven by the ways we display this wisdom of God through our fellowship. Look what Revelation chapter 5 says. See, it's one thing for us to talk about us worshiping God for salvation. But what we see in Revelation are other creatures who haven't been saved that are worshiping God over salvation. Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Creatures in heaven worshiping God over the salvation of human beings. They're looking into this. They're longing to look into this and they're seeing it and they're blown away and they're amazed by the fact that people that are so different that they watched fall in the garden and choose sin over Jesus, now being rescued back to him and submitting themselves to each other and loving each other and uniting around each other worshiping Jesus together, and they're blown away by this, and they're worshiping God in heaven over it. God is creating a people in the presence of Satan who glory in doing right, even when it isn't popular, and who delight in pleasing him, even when they suffer for it. Think about this. So we've seen the angelic presence in heaven worshiping Jesus over this, but this is even for the demonic creatures. God is creating a people that Satan can see. It's a people who glory in doing right even when their friends aren't doing it, who delight in pleasing him even when they suffer for it. We are ultimately defying Satan's accusations and expectations that people like Job only follow God because he blesses them. And we show God glorious in the eyes of the heavenly beings looking on when we keep worshiping him even in our suffering. And do you see this? Like, Angels are looking onto this and they're seeing us come together and love each other despite all of our various backgrounds. And they're like, wow, that is awesome. Let's praise God, our creator, for doing this. Satan comes to God and says, your people only worship you because you give them stuff, right? Job was rich with the things of this world. And he says, no wonder Job worships you. You give him everything. God says, this is why I keep you around, Satan because I want to show you how great I am before I ultimately judge you one day. Because the question is always, why did God allow Satan to stick around? Like, why not just wipe him out completely? Why not just remove him? Because he is showing his greatness and his glory to Satan who doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why created beings would keep coming back to Jesus even when things are taken from us. Even when we have to endure suffering for us to keep coming to Jesus and saying, you're better than the things of this world. It's amazing. The angels worship God over it and Satan is frustrated by it. In both cases, God is receiving glory for it. We bring this to light. We illuminate God's plan to unite by striving for unity with other believers. We make this known by striving for it ourselves. And this is why we can't fulfill God's purpose for our life outside of local church involvement. 
Because the gospel is not about individuals doing individual things, right? The, the angelic beings aren't impressed by an individual Christian doing individual things by himself, right? Not impressive for an individual Christian to be outside the church and just kind of do his own Christian thing over here without ever engaging or involving himself with other believers. That's not impressive to the angelic beings. But when people who are sinful and still being worked upon come together and gather regularly, not just on Sundays, but for life throughout the months, throughout the years, we gather to do life together and we hurt each other's feelings and we don't walk away from the church over it. Right? We forgive each other and we love each other. Right? When we have preferences, we set them aside and say, hey, I'll submit to you on this. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on this. Right? That's when the angelic beings say, that doesn't make sense. Like, how's God doing that? Because these are selfish people. They fell into selfishness in the garden and, and, and that's being reversed and that's being changed. And that is unbelievably impressive that not only does our creator God create but he takes the broken aspects of his creation because of sin and he recreates it as well, right? This is, this is huge, it's impressive. And God is receiving glory, not just amongst human beings, but amongst the angelic beings too, as the church is formed. Lastly, number four, we accept the suffering that often accompanies the gospel. Accept the suffering that often accompanies the gospel. We make God and his greatness known by the ways that we embrace this suffering, right? He's, he's great regardless of how we respond to our suffering, but his greatness becomes further known when people see the way that we respond to suffering and we keep trusting him in the midst of it. Look what Paul says. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory? Three things about our suffering. Number one, the eternal purposes of God should encourage us in our suffering. The eternal purposes of God should encourage us in our suffering. Remember Paul's saying all this. He's talking about being rich in Christ and he's in jail, right? He's saying all of these things while suffering. We understand that God has plans and he's carrying them out. And that gives us hope that God has a plan in our own individual circumstances too. He has plans for your suffering. He had plans for Paul's suffering. It was to bring these Gentiles to light. It was to encourage them and to bring them to salvation. God has purpose in our suffering too. Eternal purposes. Number two, the nearness to Christ that we enjoy should encourage us in our suffering. This Christ who has eternal purposes, don't lose sight of the fact and think he's way hands off and he's just doing eternal things and he's not involved in your individual things because he says, hey, this same Christ, it's who we have boldness and access to with confidence through our faith in him. Hey, you can go to him in times of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, both those passages attest to that. We can approach him with confidence, full assurance that he's gonna hear us and he is going to help us in our time of need. Number three, the ways we respond to our own suffering should encourage others. The ways we respond to our own suffering should encourage others. We must be faithful to help others see our suffering through a heavenly perspective too. And if we're not careful, people can be discouraged and not even be suffering themselves. Just be discouraged by watching a believer suffer and not suffer well. That can be discouraging. Paul says, hey, wake up. 
yes, I'm in jail, but don't be sad about it because I'm not sad about it, right? So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. He's like, hey, don't be discouraged by this because I'm not discouraged about this. Why would you be discouraged about it? I'm the one suffering, right? We have a responsibility to suffer well, to help others who look into our lives and see us suffering, to help them see it from a heavenly perspective, right? To fight for ourselves to have that heavenly perspective, but then to help others see that we are viewing this with a heavenly perspective, that God has eternal purposes, and that we are very near to this Christ who can help us in those times of need. Our identity truths to remember. Number one, every Christian is rich in Christ with the type of riches that will satisfy forever. We all have this access to these riches. Number two, every Christian is meant to participate in the agenda of making God's wisdom known in heaven. Man, we get to be a part of this church that is being built. It's being built for a purpose, to show the greatness of God as he unites people who aren't alike and makes them like-minded. Number three, every Christian is able to access God for help in times of suffering. Every Christian is able to access God for help in times of suffering. Our application for today. Number one, to keep seeking unity and reconciliation as needed with other believers, remembering that others outside this world are watching. Man, don't take a situation where you're in disagreement or disunity with another believer and just dismiss it and say, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to try to pursue that or bring that up or try to reconcile. It's not, it's not worth it. I don't like confrontation. I don't like those conversations anyway, so I'll just harbor the hurt, keep it inside, and try to push through it. I mean, don't do that. Why? Because you're missing an opportunity to put the greatness of God on display for even non-humans to witness, right? Beautiful for humans to witness believers reconciling with each other when hurt has happened. But it even goes supernatural when the angelic beings are watching this and observing this, right? Don't miss the opportunity to make God's greatness known just because you don't like conflict, just because it would be easier to just keep this to yourself. When hurt has happened, we need to reconcile. We need to have those conversations, right? God's glory becomes further known when we do it. Number two, keep viewing your trials through the lens of God's plans, remembering that others in the body are watching. Keep viewing your trials through the lens of God's plans, remembering that others in the body are watching. We can encourage each other through the ways that we handle our trials. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. God, we're thankful for this body of believers right here. God, we're thankful that you started this church almost 10 years ago with a group of people. And God, I'm thankful that today, while many of those people still remain, you have brought so many more and included them in our body. God, I pray that our little local church right here would be a model and an example of what it looks like to be the people of God and to welcome others into this group. God, we know that what we are right now doesn't even compare to the challenges that Jews and Gentiles were facing. But God, we're, we're, we're people that are different, different preferences, different opinions, different backgrounds, different walks of life. But God, I pray that we would unite with each other in such a way where preferences are set aside, where hurts can be set aside, 
where reconciliation can be pursued, where new people can be welcomed and relationships can be formed and deepened, where people can be welcomed and have full access to what's happening in this church, even if they haven't been here the whole time. God, we want to model that, what it looks like in the big universal church. God, help us to be a place that's welcoming to new people, people who aren't like us. God, help us to see that when you bring more people to this church, it gives us a chance to unite with more people. And that by doing so, we bring great glory and honor to you, not just in the eyes of human beings, but in the eyes of angelic beings as well. God, we want to be a a small pocket that angels look down on and say, how did God do that? How did he do that? How did he unite people that are so different? God, help us to be that type of presence here in this community. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that in spite of our sinful past, you can use us. God, I pray that as we approach this upcoming week, trials that we may face, God, help us to suffer well through those. Help us to keep running back to you. Help Satan to be completely confused by the fact that when things don't go our way, we keep trusting you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. God, we ask that you would keep us trusting in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.